But I think the good things we did in the beginning from a tech perspective is that we made the right data models. And the other one was craft excellence. We were surprisingly focused on just kind of having really good craftsmen, really good people who can solve complex problems. Welcome to The Craft. Thanks so much for jumping on board again, Nilo. By no further means of intro, I would jump directly into the questions, I guess. Maybe first one, just to set the basics, I guess, what a ride, zero to 500 engineers, from what we've learned. Edwald would love to, you know, understand the, the basics, I guess, right? Like, how did you end up in engineering, kind of, you know, your path at Walt, and also what are those 500 engineers capable of doing and, and building and shipping today? Yeah, sure. I mean, like, how did I get into engineering? Well, uh, I don't know. I, I started coding when I was young. I sold my first commercial website when I was 14, I think. Mm -hmm. But then, then I took a detour and I actually went into radio hosting. And I was a radio host for a little while. And then that didn't really pan out and there wasn't really a career in it. So I went back to studying engineering. I don't know, started my own company the first year in, started doing various things in, uh, in the tech sphere. And it kind of picked up from there. I mostly focused on high-end customer experience projects. So I really care about high-end CX, mostly because it's really fun to build from an engineering perspective because there's enough challenges in it. And you get to solve like, build something at the kind of greatest edge in the world. So trying to build something that's kind of world-class and you get to kind of solve real customer problems. That's where I kind of like what I loved about engineering. I used to build all sorts of things from like crappy game engines to some playing with physics and 3D. So a lot of kind of corporate solutions as well. Some crappy backends, beautiful frontends. And then I ran some teams and built some designs and did all sorts of things before I ended up at Vault. But you also wondered why I ended up at Vault. Yes. I was actually trying to do a, a, like two. When, when did you start within Vault? Kind of like, I yeah. mean, engineering is a, is a long ride. Sure. So I mean, I joined Vault in, in 2000. 2016, signed in 2015. So basically the company had just started deliveries two or three months earlier. I just started finding the product market fit. The first versions of some of the products were out there, but it was very early days. It was the founders, me and a few others hacking away in a in a room. And nowadays I'm actually the oldest techie alive in the company. So the last one standing, but we worked a lot with the, with the kind of original founders of Vault kind of building building the fundamentals. I built the original Vault.com, the first web website we actually had. That's what I started with because when I joined, we didn't have anything on that side. And then I built some of the core merchant tooling side of things and then took over the, the rest of engineering when we started scaling. So it was around, I think, Series B when we started doing this heavy scaling mode. And that's when we needed some leadership more than hands-on coding. So I started focusing on that side. And from that onwards, basically built product engineering, analytics and design for a while and then focused on engineering over time after we got like 70, 80 people in. Also built up security, built up IT, like all these kind of affiliate things, built what needed to be done to get us where we're going. And also if you look into to Vault milestones, right? There was the, the big acquisition, I guess, that also happened in your tenure. You know, how did that affect kind of like your path within the organization, I guess? Yeah, I think it's kind of, I mean, it's of course a, like a certain kind of an, like an end of an era or kind of a, like a culmination point of a rickety rocket ship ride to be acquired for, like, I don't know, seven, eight billion or however it was, much it was in the end. I think like we did the integration or we've been doing the integration with a rather, rather kind of like really well thought out ways. So we didn't want to slow down business. The whole idea was how can we conquer more of the globe together? How can we be better at, at winning new markets and the existing markets with, with because every market is super competent in this industry. So that, that's kind of been the, uh, still the kind of founding ethos. We're trying, we're finding ways we can work better together with, with the, the, especially the data and the kind of learnings we've done on both sides on how to run this very distributed. We run it like 23, 26 countries nowadays. 
like how, how to run this very distributed, very multi-local kind of setup versus running a really big market that DoorDash is excellent as. I think we're kind of doing a lot of the learnings. We're building some things together as well, but it's really independent. So basically, I am still running what what is the kind of Vault engineering and the Vault platform side, but we are looking into actively like how, how do we get competitive advantage in working together? So not much has changed, except I have a new friends from DoorDash side and, and Ryan is amazing. So I don't mind. Good, yeah. amazing friends. I think we, we can use the end of our conversations to talk about you know the, the path ahead for for the two organizations yeah. right? but maybe before we fast forward i guess maybe just like to the very basics at Walt, right mm -hmm. to you being there hacking the technology i guess and the you know set, getting the basics right is essential for for engineering organizations and engineering cultures i guess as well so how did you do it right how did you hire select the first few engineers who build it together with you how did you set the first tech stack i guess enabling it to scale and to to become uh, to where it is today. Yeah, I think the if, it's, if you start from the first tech stack, it's a bit of a bittersweet journey, I guess, for every growth company because you start with what you start with. Like, mm -hmm. like I don't think any any successful growth company has spent like like, like a ton of time thinking about the the start the kind of technology in the beginning. You focus on the customer problems. We started with a modern modern set of Python and MongoDB as our database in the back in the day. That was the initial one, and the native clients. That was kind of the initial initial version of Vault. The first version was nothing but those. It was basically a Python monolith among DB background and on the background using some Redis for, for, for some of the operations and then just uh, then just kind of building it up from there. I think the, the, the tech side, I think like the cool thing about that, or the good thing about that was is it's, it's very fast to develop, like like modern Python is kind of very fast to iterate and develop, same as having like a document database. So there's like not many restrictions around things because you iterate really fast and you don't know, know what the end result will be. And you're changing everything, you're overhauling even half of the product rather fast as we did in the beginning as well because new focuses came vault was originally built as, as a pickup device not even a delivery platform so we okay. pivoted the whole thing into a delivery platform within months and kind of just made kind of made it suddenly kind of because that's that worked really well and i think that the technology choice being very flexible kind of really helped us in doing so we made localization and locales to be a thing from the get-go every data model supported different more than just one country and more than just one currency and we started like thinking about this how do like delivery pricing scenario scale over time so the initial kind of data model setup was actually almost to today scaled we haven't we iterated of course and improved but a lot of it is still the same because the solutions have allowed us to scale rather fast. They weren't the easiest to build at the, in the beginning because we spent a bit more time on it. But that, that's something I think we did really right in the beginning. We got the kind of the fundamental data about us to really support the complexity of the things we wanted to build. And I'm kind of actually kind of a bit proud of that. It's not, not my doing, it's the team's doing, but I think it was a very, very kind of good start. On the, on the quality of people or the kind of like, how do you kind of get the right ones? We were very deliberate in the beginning about like understanding this, this kind of because the, the founders also came from a like a strong startup background and had a lot, kind of a lot wide network. So the ethos about the first people you hire are the people who scale with you. They're the people who become the kind of future leaders because they're the most monumental ones that kind of have the most influence and, and kind of clout over time because they understand the systems the best. And this, at least, we kind of experienced that firsthand going forward. So like we were very deliberate in the beginning, very very picky, like extremely picky on what sort of people we hired in two aspects. One of them is product mindedness. So because we are we are a consumer product company you need to be able to find the value of the productions do product products do this uh 
economies of code approach really well. So what do you need to build really well? What do you don't? What can you hack together? What is the, the best thing to hack for customers that can still have some level of integrity in the back end that you can actually kind of scale with it or not? We, we, we failed in the beginning of scaling quite a lot because we wanted to just optimize for the customer experience. But that product mindedness was one of the kind of like we, every engineer needed to breathe the mission. That was the beginning. And the other one was craft excellence. We were surprisingly focused on just kind of having really good craftsmen, really good people who can solve complex problems, not with the specific technology. I don't think we hired anybody who was a Python expert in the, in the first, I don't know, 40 engineers. Nobody was an expert in the technology. We had a lot of people from Java backgrounds, some from, I don't know, .NET, C++, like depending on the background didn't really matter as much as their capability to solve complex problems and that product mindedness. And those people are still the principal engineers, the senior staff engineers in the company today. They're the back technical backbone of what we built. Yeah. And most of those were hired in the first year of kind of actually hiring new engineers. Yeah. So it's really kind of they, that being picky paid off for us. It was very painful in the beginning. And we, we kind of, for example, in, like hiring was really optimized for us, sell, finding the right people and then selling the dream like super hard so that they loved, wanted to join us because they, of course they can join anywhere else. Why would they join this tiny startup going forward? So we focused a lot on this kind of sailing and also sailing through the craft because great engineers want to work with challenging problems with, with kind of other great engineers. So it's a lot about kind of sailing the, the approach of how we build things and how, how, how good we are as a technical organization. Long answer. <laughs> Long answer, but very, very helpful answer, I guess. But it also relates to the next discussion theme and one, one of the main themes I wanted to, to talk with you and also, you know, share with the broader community, I guess. Why or how do you define engineering craft? What's craft for you? Like a lot of people talk about, you know, engineering culture and effective organizations and what's so not, but you focus super heavily on this like craft piece. Can you elaborate on that? And, you know, why is it so essential even still today, right? Yeah. I mean, okay, we also focus a lot on culture. There's a lot of culture, cultural things that I like to preach about ownership. That's a really big pounding part. But I think if you think of craft specifically at Vault, like, The thing is, like, it's not science. We may have science in, like, maybe at the deepest part of our logistics is science. That's where we we actually become science. We're trying to solve a problem that is unsolvable. Like a, a perfect solution doesn't exist, so we need to kind of find find the boundaries of of the solution space. Most of consumer business that we are also mostly in is about solving the right customer problems, and right. that's really about kind of it's not like you're not reinventing the wheel as such. You just need to do it really well. Or I believe there's a lot of value in kind of we have one of these values at Vault that's called excellence, doing common things uncommonly well. So I like be simply doing better. As a company, that's what also we did. Like they were com modern competitors, even in our home market when we started this. So there's never been a non-competed market where we're in. There's always like the worst markets have seven modern competitors. It's a brutal onslaught out there. It's like, and how do you differentiate? There are kind of certain things we can do around selection and there's and, and kind of the logistics efficiency, which is kind of maybe more of that science part, which we crack pretty well. But a lot of it's just being better. Like our customer experience is better. Our customer kind of like the ratings in App Store are the industry's highest. Our customer satisfaction is super high. The way we do support is very kind of deliberately kind of quality focused. So that's kind of like, that's like where the kind of, I think craft matters quite a lot. So we, we also, it's also about the kind of reliability and the kind of quality of the technical solutions you build. It comes to the same thing. But a lot of that goes to the economies of code. What are the things you need to build really well? What are the things you don't need to build that well? 
and having a very deliberate, very strong product-minded senior engineers who can really play with that kind of spectrum. But everything we build, even if we do kind of hacks, the code quality is great. Like the PR reviews are at times brutal, but kind of very uh, well-intentioned. So like everything is always reviewed. Everything is very kind of like very well debated that like we use the right patterns and we think, figure out how, how do we kind of want to really build these technologies together. Also because we're building with, I don't know, 500 engineers, they need to be good for building together. You need to optimize for outside of just a single contributor. How did you achieve to scale this, I would call it like definition of, you know, excellence, right? And definition of craft to 500 engineers. It's probably easy to do for the first couple of like tens of them, right? But how do you ensure that it's there from the junior to the staff engineer? That's an excellent question. It's really difficult, especially when you grow like a hundred percent headcount year over year, as we did pretty much for, for many, many years in a row. I think there's There's like a few ways to, I think, scale this sort of culture approach because it's not really about processes. We don't force a lot of processes around. It's more about the approach. Like, what, what do you value? And a lot of that bleeds from the senior engineers. So having every, like we shuffled a lot of the senior engineers around. When we make new teams, we always have existing team members joining in. We don't make anything from scratch so that you would just have like people who don't understand our ways. That's like one kind of very pragmatic way of doing it. But there are others, like we introduced this, this role called competency leader along the way, which is really a, a role that focuses on like, like te one technology, like a Python competency lead. It's a lot of like, like this kind of like internal evangelizing of technology. Like what are the best practices? How, how, what sort of rubrics we use in hiring to get the right sort of people? What are, what are the ways we, I don't know, in, improving the, taking the latest logging library in rules or whatever kind of more technical tidbits as well. But it's a lot about this kind of like a role whose job is to basically make this technology and the way we approach this technology matter. So because when you do, like, we do like highly customer oriented or business oriented teams, end to end capable teams that are always oriented on the problem that the customer has or a business has. So they, they never, never own exactly technology. They always own a customer problem. And in this sort of model, which is something we really double down on, and I think it's the only true way to build products in, in the modern era, you kind of lose the craft or the kind of like technology aspect because you don't have it in any way in the, in the leadership structures. It's not really kind of present. So we introduced this role to kind of help, kind of, kind of keep that balance, have some people are advocating for it. You don't need many of them. It's not a huge kind of like, like time sink. They run these competence groups as well. So they do a lot of meetups inside the company and they run this kind of community of practice around technologies. And it's been very effective for us and rather kind of not a huge investment. The only thing is you need to have the right people. It's a really difficult role to do this sort of developer enablement inside a company. It's, we've noticed it's, it's not very easy, but it's been one of the kind of like strategic points of like, like adding. And I, I wanted it on purpose because otherwise everything is like, we kind of lose that aspect because everything is focused on the kind of customer value generation, which is the main thing you need to be optimizing for. And if I'm an engineer within Bolt and I, you know, follow the craft, I do excellent work. Can I also still work on open source projects and software? And, uh, you know, we, we discussed this also upfront. How much does open source software play a role within Bolt? And do you believe in a, you know, model like the big companies that you engineers can spend or should spend XYZ time working on those projects? How essential do you see it for Bolt, right? I think there's like two aspects of that. One is like, of course, we build everything we have pretty much on based on open source technologies. We we run like almost everything we do is, is based on like, like you run everything on Kubernetes. It's an open source project. A PostgreSQL, kind of like, like the things you build, Mongo isn't technically, technically full an open source project, but but like there's a, like we are running on, on kind of mostly open source in general, but how we look at it internally is that we do a lot of contributions to open source and we build some of some projects ourselves as, as well. But the principle, like, I don't like in general, doing this kind of percentage of time, kind of vague, fluffy ways of looking at organizational efficiency. I Why? think it needs to be because, uh, because, it because, it's, others, it, because right? it's 
yeah, I don't know. Did it? I, I'm I am skeptical. But anyway, like I, I think the, the, maybe to clarify, the way we we look at it is kind of like where there's an impact. Like, well, what do we want to solve for our customers? And if it's something we can solve well enough that we can open source, or we can find open source projects we contribute to to make better. We used to use OSRM a lot, which is a kind of like I think it's nowadays owned by Macbox, maybe as, a, as an open source project. But we used to contribute quite a lot to that as well because it was something we used in the data side. We do a lot of this, so it's something we we find a problem we need to solve. We find an open source project that might help us, and then we we kind of contribute to it or we make something of our own if it's like important enough for us in the in the business side. But it needs to come from a need. Like we are here to solve customer value, so we need to find that need first. And then we can build it with the craft enough that it, we can be proud of it and, and give it to the rest of the world. Because that kind of bigger community fully believe in that. I think that's like when we wouldn't exist without a proper open source community. Like Walt couldn't build what, what they did. We don't have the resources to build everything from scratch. We rely a lot on this. And I think we need to give back. But I think it needs to come from that, that there's an actual need, a real business need that you build a case around. We do the same for like trainings at Walt. It's like you can, I'm supportive of any training, but you just need to find out, like, okay, this is what it enables me to do. Just make a case. Like this sort of ownership and driving it yourself is a big part of Vault. And it also goes into open source and you know, all this. So we don't give you a budget. It's based on what you actually need to do. It's kind of like this, uh, it's worked super well for us at least because I think, I think you get a lot by giving percentages. Of course, if you got like 20% time for open source, of course you get those results. But you could have probably gotten 10x those results with the amount of resources you spent on that. It's not very efficient. And I like efficiency because it's a we are in a zero a, a low margin business, so we need to have be very efficient in how we how we build things. And I think a lot of engineering is about this sort of cost trade off. So I think it's it works well. You get both things. You get happy engineers who contribute on right projects and create kind of good good community impact and are just happy in their careers as well. But you also get the right benefits for the for the kind of customers. Uh, what's the most the open source project you're most proud of? I guess where either Vault launched a project right or contributed in a significant way well i mean i i, I like how we contributed to data hub when we were doing the kind of the, the latest kind of uh, upgrades to our data platform but for my personal personal i just it's a small thing but i, I like this open source project called blur hash that we built which solves a really simple problem really really well which is that you can you can make image hashes a small little hashes that you can they don't take a lot of space that you can store and, and render we built this like front-end library for all the different uh, platforms where you can render a blurred image without kind of any image sent. So basically just like an eight, eight bit hash, for example. And it's, it's a really kind of simple, beautiful, elegant tool for high-end customer experience. And it's something that we kind of like to build. And we built it in-house. The guy who built it was just really happy with it. And we figured, we, let's make it a proper open source project and just launch it out there. And I heard, I think Mastodon uses it pretty ag ag actively. And I know some, some, some Silicon Valley startups started using it at some point. So I was like, it's just kind of got some organic traction. And right. it's not like a mad, it's not solving like a hard problem in this world, but it's solving something simple, but uncommonly well. Yeah. That's kind of, that's, I like that. So maybe that's, that's my uh, favorite. Talking <laughs> about, I guess the elephant in the current, or in the context of the, the current world and the generated AI kind of like a hype. And you also mentioned, you know, you're doing hackathons uh, still within Vault. To what extent are you already using, you know, large language models and the like? And also there you can do both, right? You can use open source one or closed source one. What's the take there within uh, world uh, right now? Yeah. So, I mean, I think like we, we are adopting it. Like we, we kind of jumped on the bandwagon quite hard. We were got, got quite convinced that there is a lot of benefit in, especially kind of 
automating things that you don't really need to maybe spend that much time on. So basically making developers time like super a lot more efficient. So we jumped into the like the develop like the developer side of things, so like, like GitHub Copilot and, and such. And, and then we went also on the on the other end of actual product feature side. From the kind of commercial versus open source, we use both at the moment. Like we we build some in, infra support ourselves in our own kind of ML infra that we can run different sorts of sorts of LLMs and we kind of build support for a couple and are running a few use cases around support and, and around kind of uh, item category categorization or this kind of data data categorization both with external and internal like i think we're we're looking at like whatever does the job well at this point and exploring because this the, the industry is moving so fast and things are moving changing so fast that we are we're kind of keeping the options very open so we have kind of all of the above i think that the interesting thing is that, that, that i believe there's a huge potential in in being more efficient both in engineering as well as in, in kind of in our for example in our product space in what we can what we can understand what we need to sell it's very incomplete normally the data and not very categorizable if you think of restaurant food and it's very interesting what, what you can do around imaging around the uh, kind of generative images we just did a hackathon project around generative images which turned out amazing and in, in 48 hours you could create like basically 100 percent image coverage if you wanted to for your for your catalog which is pretty cool there's a lot of potential there and i think a lot of the innovation will probably be driven by the open source community going forward which i hope at least because it's, it's kind of a seems to be going quite fast but i'll use whatever is best totally understood <laughs> it's all, all about performance right and reliability but like hmm? why do you think the open source community will drive a lot of it versus you know the the large super massively funded like closed source players well at least the kind of level of like the rate of innovation has been pretty great in the last months where kind of kind of we found ways to run these in smaller and smaller hardware be irrelevant models so kind of like it's like that you maybe like a lot of new new knowledge about maybe you don't need to spend billions training everything if you can actually take the right sort of learnings and subsets of these and run them in, in i don't know your own little 490 at home kind of a kind of a situation so i think there's a there's a lot of this sort of innovation happening and typically the open source community is way bigger than what what companies have and it's differently incentivized so you find this kind of disruptive innovation happening i know somebody and runs a nice lm on their smart fridge and solves the world problem like <laughs> who, who knows i mean at least it seems to be at the moment but i mean like, that's why we're back we're looking at both both avenues of course because the the kind of reliability of the results the kind of lack, how little hallucination how efficient it gets is very interesting and and i think we need to just figure out who who gets it best cool maybe closing statement and closing question also merging the two aspects right on the one hand this like goal and aspiration for engineering as a craft and on the other side you have new tooling and you also mentioned that helping developers to not automate themselves, but make them much more efficient. Do you see a threat for your definition of craft or even a boost through those new technologies on the Gen AI well, for developers? I'm an optimist, so I'll, I'll go with the boost here, here kind of like, I think it's, I think we will still need like engineers who really understand what they're building, but they can do it a lot more, a lot more faster. You can already automate a lot of use cases like testing or, or writing, writing tests, or maybe over time refactoring an architecture can be done reliably. You can just give it your monolith and say, I want these sort of six microservices and this sort of data delineation, and it just works. But you still need to find out what you need to do to get the, to the customer value. And that's what we're doing today. It just makes it more efficient. And hopefully let's just do, do less repetitive work and we can actually use our brains more. So I think I just see a kind of a lot of benefits in basically having every engineer be more efficient in what, what, what kind of doing what matters.
solving those customer problems. I mean, if you're if you're be negative, of course, it, it's you can automate so many things. That maybe you end up with a generation of engineers who don't understand the fundamentals anymore. So you just find solutions rather than understanding what why do they really work. And that's probably a, like a threat that can exist, especially in the learning front, because the best engineers know that's the whole idea of engineering. You know the underlying reasons. You understand the stack, and you kind of know that why these things work, rather than just that they work. And I think that that's probably something that might be a threat over time. But I'm a, I'm an optimist. People, smart people, will still prevail. We'll just be more efficient. Cool. Thanks so much, Nilo. Super, super helpful.